my land and my people, the memoirs of His Holiness the Dalai Lama of Tibet. Chapter 3 Peace of Mind Before I tell of the disaster which has overtaken Tibet, I must try to give an impression of the life of our people in our happier days. Tibet has many neighbors, China, Mongolia, East Turkestan in the east and north, and India, Burma and the states of Nepal, Sikkim and Bhutan in the south. Pakistan, Afghanistan and the Soviet Union are also close to us. For many centuries, we have had relationships with several of these neighbors. With India in particular, we have had strong religious ties during the past thousand years. Indeed, our alphabet was derived from Sanskrit because when Buddhism was brought to Tibet from India, there was no Tibetan script and the script was needed so that religious works could be translated and read by Tibetans. We also had religious and political ties with Mongolia and China. And in earlier times we had connections with Persia and East Turkey so that there is still a resemblance between Persian and Tibetan dress. In more recent history, about the beginning of the 20th century, we had political relations with Russia and thereafter for a longer period with Britain. But despite these neighborly relationships, Tibetans are a distinct and separate race. Our physical appearance and our language and customs are entirely different from those of any of our neighbors. We have no ethnological connection with anyone else in our part of Asia. Perhaps the best known quality of Tibet in the recent past was its deliberate isolation. In the world outside, Lhasa was often called the Forbidden City. There were two reasons for this withdrawal from the world. The first, of course, was that the country is naturally isolated. Until the last decade, the route from the borders of India or Nepal to Lhasa was a journey of two months across high Himalayan passes, which were blocked for a large part of the year. From my birthplace in the borderland between Tibet and China, the journey to Lhasa was even longer, and I have already told and that borderland itself was over a thousand miles from the sea coast and ports of China. Isolation was therefore in our blood. We increased our natural isolation by allowing the fewest possible foreigners into our country simply because we had had experience of strife especially with China and had no ambition whatsoever except to live in peace and pursue our own culture and religion and we thought that to hold ourselves entirely aloof from the world was the best way of ensuring peace. I must say at once that I think this policy was always a mistake and my hope and intention is that in the future the gates of Tibet will be kept wide open to welcome visitors from every part of the world. Tibet has been called the most religious country in the world. I cannot judge if that is so or not, but certainly all normal Tibetans regarded spiritual matters as no less important than material matters. And the most remarkable thing about Tibetans was the enormous number of monasteries in it. 
There are no exact figures, but probably 10% of the total population were monks or nuns. This gave a dual nature to the whole of our social system. In fact, it was only in my position as Dalai Lama that lay and monastic authority was combined. I had two prime ministers, one a monk and one a layman, and below them most other offices were duplicated. The Kashak cabinet normally had four members, of whom one was a monk and three were lay officials. Below the cabinet in rank were two separate offices, the Yigsang secretariat, headed by four monk officials who were responsible directly to the Dalai Lama and were in charge of religious affairs, and the Tsikang finance office headed by four laymen in charge of lay affairs of state. The departments which any government requires, foreign affairs, agriculture, taxation, posts and telegraphs, defense, the army, etc. were each under two or three chairmen. There were also two chief justices and the city courts had two judges. Finally, several of the provinces of Tibet had two governors. The National Assembly could be convened in three forms. Its smallest form, which was almost continuously in session, included the eight officials of the Yigsang and Tsikang, together with other high lay officials and representatives of the three great monasteries near Lhasa, about 20 representatives in all. The Nucleus Assembly could convene a larger body of about 30 members to consider specific problems and on matters of great importance such as the confirmation of the discovery of the new reincarnation of the Dalai Lama. Full assembly of about 400 members from all the official and non-official levels were called into session. Outside the monasteries, our social system was feudal. There was inequality of wealth between the landed aristocracy at one extreme and the poorest peasants at the other. It was difficult to move up into the class of aristocracy, but not impossible. For example, a soldier could be awarded a title and land for bravery, and both were hereditary. But on the other hand, promotion to higher ranks in the monasteries and among the monk officials was democratic. A boy could enter a monastery from any social class and his progress there would depend on his own ability. And indeed, it might also be said that the reincarnation of high lamas had a democratic influence because incarnate lamas often choose to be reborn in humble families as the 13th Dalai Lama did so that men from lowly surroundings like myself were found in the highest positions in the monastic world. I use the past tense reluctantly because Tibet is under attack and one cannot say at this moment which of our institutions still exist and which are being destroyed. The monasteries had their own monk craftsmen to provide their own needs and they traded to some extent. Some of them had large grants of land and some had endowments which they invested but others had neither of these possessions. They often received personal gifts, some acted as moneylenders, and a few charged rates of interest higher than I can approve. 
but on the whole they were not economically self-sufficient. Most of them depended more or less on subsidies, mainly of food from the government. This was the reason why the government held stocks of grain and tea and butter and also of cloth in the cellars of the Potala and elsewhere. These subsidies, of course, came ultimately from the rents or taxes of the laity. I have mentioned soldiers. We had an army, but it was very small. Its main work was to man the frontier posts and to stop unauthorized foreigners coming into the country. This army also formed a police force, except in the city of Lhasa, which had its own police and in the monasteries. In Lhasa, the army added military color to ceremonies and lined the route whenever I left the palaces. It had a curious history. About 50 years ago, when we were having trouble with the Chinese, my predecessor decided to bring the army up to date by employing a few foreign instructors for a short while. Nobody could tell which was the best foreign army to model it on. So we had one regiment trained by Russians, one by Japanese and one by British. The British system turned out to be the most suitable, so the whole army was organized on British lines. The British instructors left Tibet more than a generation ago, but up till 1949, the army still used British words of command in its drill. Since there had been no such martial words in a language and among the Tibetan marches played by its military bands were the melodies of It's a long way to Tipperary, all the Lang sign and God save the king. But the words of these tunes, if any Tibetan ever knew them, were forgotten long ago. However, I do not want to give the impression that our army was anachronistic or absurd. It was not. It had never been brought up to date by being mechanized, because that was impossible. It was far too small to defend our large country against attack, but for its own limited purposes, it was quite effective and its men were brave. <laughs>